Welcome to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. It's Reformation Month, and this week the gang is talking about one of our favorite reformers. Who is this man? What are his great accomplishments? And what should we read to get to know him better? Keep listening after the podcast to learn how to download a Michael Horton MP3 on this theologian. Well, today we want to start the program with a, a, a new section called Ask the Pastor, when we want to present uh, Todd Pruitt today with a particular pastoral dilemma that's arisen. And I want to, I want to talk about uh, a couple. It's, it's a very sad story. Um, they, they met some years ago. Uh, for the sake of anonymity, we'll, we'll change the names. We'll call them Martin and, and Catherine. Uh, they met some years ago. They they fell in love and they married and they had a number of children. Uh, and one day, rather sadly, uh, Martin was out traveling and um, he became ill. But he wrote uh, Catherine a letter, unaware of, of what was about to happen to him. He wrote her just uh, an ordinary run-of-the-mill love letter. And Catherine's question to Todd is since the the tragic death of her husband shortly after writing this letter Catherine's letter uh, Catherine's question is how should she remember her husband and I want to quote here from a particularly dare I say it moving part of the letter uh, and then ask Todd's Todd's advice Todd here is how the the letter ends and I know you're a sensitive man so I'm expecting big things from you here and uh, I'm sure Catherine will be very helped uh, by your advice. Uh, the, the, Martin wrote this, I'm drinking beer from Naumburg, which tastes to me almost like the beer from Mansfeld, which you praise to me. It agrees with me well and gives me about three bowel movements in three hours in the morning. Mm. Catherine's question is, those, those are the last words that her husband ever communicated to her. Yeah. How how should she remember him? How should she remember him? How as a pastor would you counsel her on on how to remember her husband? Yeah. Well, those 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 truly are moving final words. Um, you know, it it may be. I think something tangible is appropriate in this way. Um, I think it will give her maybe a sense of comfort, something to hold on to. Um, as I think about that particular letter and those particular words, perhaps even something like. Um, uh, embroidered uh, seat cushions. Um, could, you, she could call them stool softeners, something like that. Um, and uh, that might be that might be appropriate. Um, that's but yeah. that's that's extremely extremely like a romantic helpful. guy. Well, yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I, again, I'm a sensitive guy. I'm a romantic guy, and um, clearly, the writer of the letter was as well. And I think in order to do justice to his final words, um, I think something rather permanent that she can remember him by would be good. So, Well, I will, I will certainly communicate that to, to the lady concerned. <laughs> and, uh, but perhaps I can sort of tip, tip my hat at this point and reveal to you that, Todd Pruitt, you have just given pastoral advice to Mrs. Martin Luther. Oh, my of goodness. Course, I didn't of course, see you that never coming. knew that was coming. <laughs> no. Wow. We are 
<laughs> we are, of course, in, in Reformation season. And so we want to spend some of the podcast, uh, some time on the podcast, talking about the significance of Martin Luther, not simply for cures to irregularity, but to uh, the <laughs> Reformation as a whole. So, Todd, uh, you're a pastor. Ever read Martin Luther? Ever find him useful or helpful in your pastoral ministry? Absolutely. In fact, I mean, Luther was very, very important to me when I was a Southern Baptist in dealing with the doctrines of grace, even though we don't associate Luther particularly with the doctrines of grace. It was the first thing I ever read of Luther was the bondage of the will. And that was one of the key turning points for me in um, identifying uh, the problem with a lot of the thoughts regarding free will that I'd been raised in. And so it was reading Bondage of the Will, I think probably more than anything else, that helped me embrace the reformational understanding of the doctrine of man, what we would understand as the biblical understanding of the doctrine of man, particularly um, with, un- uh, with um, total depravity. Um, I, found, I found the Bondage of the Will extremely helpful um, in that regard. Yeah, yeah it was one of only... Just, uh, that book helped ahead, me a Amy. lot with just understanding what freedom really is because mm-hmm. so often we think oh we're free to choose whatever we want but we we didn't understand i didn't understand that um in heaven we're not really free to sin but that's where we'll truly be the most free that's and where that we'll be free now sin. we are in bondage to without the holy spirit to the slavery of of sinful desires so that right. was a really helpful book for me too and same kind of mm-hmm. transition in my life yeah yeah, it was one of only a couple of books that Luther thought worthy of outliving him. The the Bondage of the Will and the Catechisms, he said, were the things that he'd written that he thought were worth preserving uh, after his death. And you know, even though he wrote the work as a response to Erasmus, uh, who'd written uh, a piece the year before, uh, essentially arguing that Scripture was obscure on the issue of the will. Right. Nobody today remembers Erasmus's right. diatribe. Nobody reads that, and yet Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will remains a staple, I think, of uh, many Christian bookshelves. And in mm-hmm. uh, the translation of it by J.I. Packer and O.R. Johnson in the 50s in England served to, to revitalize the more anti-Pelagian sovereign grace dimension of, of British evangelicalism in the 20th century. So, yeah, it's an extremely important book, and Luther himself at the end does, uh, does Erasmus the, the honor of saying, at least you've raised a substantial issue. You are, uh, alone have actually put your finger on the, the point of major issue uh, in the Reformation. I also, I also Carl, I, I love the fact that Luther, and, and you really see this in the, way, in the ways that he responds to Erasmus, who you know, was the great intellectual of his day, very urbane, um, and Luther comes along with a great deal of intellectual heft, but also a lot of chutzpah as well. And one of the things I loved about it's Luther was the fact, I mean, he, I love the fact that he chutzpah. believed that ideas with worth, were, were worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That important yeah, ideas the, were worth fighting for. He makes the famous statement in there that Christianity without assertions is not Christianity. Right. Um, and of course, the only reason he responded to Erasmus was because Erasmus was such an important figure. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when the work arrives in Wittenberg, Philip Melanchthon, Luther's uh, lieutenant, is, is very pleased with it. He thinks that Erasmus is, is on board with the Reformation. Luther yeah. reads it and goes into something of a depression because he realizes he's actually got to address this. It, this isn't just yeah. some, mm-hmm. some idiot having a pop. This is the preeminent 
uh, Christian, in the broadest sense of the word, thinker of the day, uh, articulating uh, a theological position. What I mean, Carl. Okay, so you've just you've just recently finished, or are in the process of finishing a, a book on on Luther and the Christian life for for Crossway. And um, where would you place his commentary on Galatians, as far as the hierarchy in importance of Luther's writings? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the shameless commercial plug. Of <laughs> did, I, did I do that at Maybe the right moment in the podcast? Well, you, was I on cue? You did, and, and if you want okay. to do it again later, that's, that's, fine. that's fine too. Uh, <laughs> sure. um, yeah. Well, Luther produces two commentaries on Galatians, and I would say the later one, which was the sort of 1531-1534 great commentary on Galatians, is uh, in many ways the, the exegetical heart of his mature theology. There you really get the law gospel antithesis laid out in considerable and elaborate detail. So I would say the commentary on Galatians, the the second, the great commentary on Galatians, is one of his, well, probably his most significant work of of biblical exegesis. But I think for for somebody wanting to get into Luther's writings, probably the best place to start is is what we call the, the three great treaties of 1520. Babylonian captivity of the church, which is his proposal for the reformation of the sacraments of the church. There is the the freedom of the Christian man, which is his articulation of the the ethical program that rests upon his understanding of justification by faith. And there is his appeal to the German nobility, where he starts to set out his understanding of the relationship between the sacred and, and the secular, between the church and the state. If you read those three treaties, in some ways you get the, the basic manifesto that Luther has for uh, the German Reformation. And one of the things that interests me is, as a pastor um, with Luther is that it, we, we, don't, we don't have a—he never laid down a systematic theology like, like Calvin did. Um, but it seems—correct me if I'm wrong, as I'm sure you will—but it seems— that so much of what drove Luther's writing were pastoral concerns. He was responding to particular challenges and problems that he, as a, a person who was invested in other people's lives, that he would respond to. I mean, is, is that a pretty good way of understanding him, that, that Luther was in part writing from pastoral concerns, from everything like assurance of salvation to um, errors and uh, different controversies that would arise? Yeah, I mean, Luther was not just a monk, he was also ordained as a priest, so he had routine pastoral duties even before the Reformation. And it was pastoral concerns uh, surrounding the sale of indulgences that really triggers the the indulgence crisis that brings him uh, European-wide fame and gives him the platform for developing his, his Reformation theology. So the pastoral context is vital to understanding the the later controversial context uh, but also throughout his his career he's very concerned to to make sure that the reformation appropriately has an impact at the grassroots level of the local church e- even mm-hmm. in even in some of the the more conservative aspects of his reformation from 1520 onwards he un- he knows there's a need for a vernacular liturgy he doesn't fully implement a vernacular liturgy in Wittenberg until 1525. And the reason is he doesn't want to disturb the common people. He wants to slowly but surely bring them on board 
I mean, you yeah. probably heard this, Todd. It's it's a sort of cliche when you become pastor of a church. You know, they say don't change anything for five years. You know, mm-hmm. Build goodwill, get the lay of the land, that sort of thing. Well, Luther is is almost the instinctive grand paradigm of that. It takes him five years to implement the vernacular liturgy in Wittenberg because he doesn't want to to disturb ordinary people. So, one of the things I find most striking and touching about Luther is his his concern for ordinary people. In mm-hmm. some ways, he right. was the first great Christian celebrity of the early modern era. People had posters of him right. in their houses, etc., etc. Uh, but he was not a grandstander. <coughs> he was always in touch with the common people. Mm-hmm. Um, his famous little treatise on prayer was written to his, his, barber, his barber, right? He was just yeah. struggling with his prayer life. Right. So yeah. he was a man deeply rooted in the life of the local church with a passionate concern to press Christ on the hearts of ordinary people. I think that's what I appreciate about learning from uh, Luther's writings, too, that you get the sense it's, it's not just about what we know or, or how we know it, but it's intimately connected to who we are. So I think you've talked before, Carl, about the difference, um, especially coming from Luther, between just being um, learning about theology and actually being a theologian. And you've talked about the, the difference between theology of the cross and being a theologian of the cross. And we talk about him as being this revolutionary figure, and you know, here we are as we're approaching Reformation Day and remembering that. But he was also so regular. I don't think that um, I don't think that he was setting out to be this revolutionary figure, but it was his concern for truth and obedience to the Word that um, led him to this being a theologian of the cross. Yeah. Yeah. And Luther makes it very clear, both both individually and corporately, uh, that the cross, suffering, is part of what makes you a true theologian. Uh, in, uh, in his work on the Council of the Church, 1539, he offers a series of, of uh, marks of the church, and one of them is the church suffers. The church is under the cross. When he talks about individual theologians, it's you know, how does one come to true appreciation of grace? It is only through res- wrestling with uh, the darkest corners of one's own religious experience that you come to that. The, the German word is Anfechtungen. It's difficult to translate. We, we could translate it as a, a deep-seated fear or dread about something that is difficult to define. You know, Freud would probably have said, you know, it's the fear of death, if you like, and certainly that's a big part of it for Luther. But it's only as a, as a Christian comes to terms with those that he becomes a true theologian. And I found that very helpful in, in my own life. I've, I've suffered comparatively little uh, compared to Martin Luther. Uh, but I do find at times when one is feeling down, when bad news has come, when you've lost a loved one to death or something like that, it's useful to remind oneself of the kind of things that Luther said about these things, that these are the points at which one's theology becomes existentially true. Mm-hmm. Yes, death and resurrection of Christ is always objectively true. But there are times when it becomes existentially and experientially true uh, through through suffering. That's what bugs me about the popular uh, appropriation of Luther by certain people today, you yeah. know, driving around in their fast cars with their cool tattoos, talking about the theology of the cross. You know, right. you just can't do that. That's theology right. of glory, man. Even even the cross can be used in a theology of glory way. Yeah. Uh, and it is it is so Luther is my homeboy. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, 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 it's kind of obscene when an overindulged generation uses the Luther's language of grace and the cross 
to feel at ease with its overindulgence. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. A real that's a problem. great point. That's a real, that's a theological problem. And frankly, it's a moral problem as well. Yeah. Yeah. As we're wrapping up um, on this discussion, and obviously you could go, we could go on for hours talking about Luther. I mean, would we, would we all agree that Luther, even though as Presbyterians, we owe a debt of gratitude to John Calvin, we would probably say Luther's the most interesting character of the Reformation. Wouldn't you say so? Absolutely. I think we, yeah. we know a lot more about his life in many ways than we do about Calvin. And uh, yeah. I think his, his, his bombastic explosiveness just makes him more fun. Yeah. He's kind so, of so abrasive fav- and compassionate. You know, I think that's the yeah. one thing. We really hold up compassionate figures now, and we don't really like the abrasive ones. But he yeah. was yeah. both. He's still pretty lovable. Used some scatol- yeah, some scatological language here and there. But uh, so, um, favorite uh, favorite books about Luther, either biographies or, or studies of his thought. Um, Carl, go. I would say uh, Roland Bainton, Here I Stand, great little biography, or Martin Marty's uh, biography of Martin Luther in the Penguin Shorter Lives series. And in terms of books on his thought, I would go first of all for Walter von Leuvenick's uh, Luther's Theology of the Cross. Amy, any, um, you said that you've read uh, Bondage of the Will. I have, and that's, that's excellent, like for a theology book. Yep. But, um, you know, as a housewife, I've really enjoyed reading just his collections and Table Talk because um, it really just connects theology to everyday hospitality and um, discipleship in ordinary life. And so there's some really deep thoughts and entertaining thoughts in there. And um, I really do think it, it helps us to see Luther as one of us. Mm-hmm. I, I um, a number of years ago, I read uh, Heiko Obermann's uh, biography of Luther, Luther, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Man Between God and the Devil, which I thought was fascinating, really sets Luther in his historical context, and I really enjoyed that. Um, I would also, I, I think that the Cambridge Companion on Martin Luther is a really good collection of, um, of, of essays and papers as well. And then if, if you're looking for something that's very, very... Um, reader friendly very accessible you know uh, carl you mentioned bainton's that's a terrific read and it's it's got some devotional quality to it i would also say michael reeves little introduction to the protestant reformation Mm. which has a good section on luther um the unquenchable flame is is Mm -hmm. terrific it's and very user friendly very reader readable Mm -hmm. reader friendly so some really good stuff out there both of them have pictures as well that's right. That's right. <laughs> Love picture books. Love picture books. Great. Well, I will. I will look forward well, to the next um, uh, letter that you bring to us, Carl, that we can deal mm-hmm. with pastorally. Um, I think we dealt with uh, Catherine or, or, or Katie's uh, letter quite well, and in, in a in a very gentle way. So, uh, hope you've enjoyed this uh, little discussion on Martin Luther. We'd encourage you to read more and um, to uh, refer to some of these books we've recommended. And until we speak next time, talk to you all later. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, to download Luther's Theology of the Cross, a seminar by Michael Horton from the 1997 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Next week on The Mortification of Spin, Carl, Todd, and Amy are joined by professor and author David Van Drunen to talk about natural law and two kingdoms theology. And, and of course, the role of Christian softball. Here's a preview. What I like to call the common kingdom is God-ordained. The offices, the occupations, the vocations that we undertake as citizens of that common kingdom have God's blessing. They are honorable to Him. They are ways that we love and serve our neighbor. That's next week on Mortification of Spin. Don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to download your free MP3. And we'll talk with you next week. Um, is there any reason to read anybody other than Carl Truman on Luther? You know, that kind of thing. Simple one to answer. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs>